Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web design and development with a little bit of zest. My name is Amy Dutton, and I am the Director of Design at Zeal, and I have a special co-host with me today, Brad Garropy. Hey, I'm Brad Garropy, and I work at Atlassian on the Developer Experience team. Web development and design, who would have guessed what we can do on both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we're joined by three fabulous sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. Zeal is a software consultancy, and they are hiring. And Dato CMS is a performant headless CMS. More from each of these later in the show. It's a new job role for me. Ah, and that just happened like a week ago, right? Yeah, about a week ago. Yeah. Was this something that you applied for? Yes, this was something that I felt, you know, pulled to work on this team. I was building like this internal CLI tool and people seemed to like it. So this team was kind of like building up on those ideas and they said, hey, why don't you come work with us? So that's awesome. That was a really good fit. Yeah. So you said developer experience? Developer experience, developer lifecycle, it kind of has some different terms, but it's kind of focused okay. on developer productivity inside the company. Oh, that's like perfect. That's like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like right? your dream job. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling Brad this week that his episode on productivity is our second most popular episode. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> I was very surprised to hear that actually. <laughs> I was like, show notes, course notes, <laughs> description below. <laughs> Trying to figure it out. Actually, funny story. So we on fall break took a road trip and my parents gave the kids like these cameras to do videos and take pictures. And so the first part of the trip, Isaac, he's eight, was like live blogging. And so he's recording from this phone and he's like, subscribe to my videos if you want additional updates. <laughs> I was like, oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah, they're, they get indoctrinated too young. I know the world we live in. <laughs> oh, man. OK, so I'm excited about this episode all about testing and TDD. So maybe we should explain what that is before we go too far down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Yeah, so you should all be familiar with what testing is, but the, this term TDD is something different. And I'm, I'm not sure that many people actually follow this practice. TDD is, stands for Test Driven Development. It's a process where you actually write your tests first and then write code to satisfy those tests. I got to say, this is a great start to the episode. <laughs> I do not use TDD. I just don't. What's your experience with TDD? I don't use it either. I'm really embarrassed to admit that. I at work though, I feel like our Rails developers do a better job of writing tests first. Mm. But when it comes to the front end, I don't think, well, I don't know what that looks like, but I know I don't. So I kind of use that as an excuse with front end development versus back end development. I don't know if that's a fair excuse or not. Yeah, like this is definitely one of those things where in software development, I feel like the flow is number one, make it work. Number two, <laughs> make it right. And then I think there's yeah. like steps after that. But especially when it comes to front end, you're like feeling out how these user flows and user interactions are going to go. So it's more of like a journey getting there, unless you have a design team telling you build this. But yeah. 
Well, like visual regression testing, you cannot test that first. You have to have a snapshot of something in order to test it. But this summer I was writing some stuff with Redwood and this was on the back end piece of it and was not getting the right calls that I wanted from the database. And so in that instance, instead of trying to check everything in the browser, it really was easier for me to write a test first to say, this is what I'm expecting. This is what I want back. And then let the code tell me if it was actually running correctly. So that feels good when that process works. Yeah, that's a great jump ahead in the episode to what I would call unit testing. There's lots of different types Mm -hmm. of testing. So to bring it back just a little bit, what types of testing do you do? And when do you write your tests in the process of development? Let's start there. Yeah. So most of the tests that I write are unit tests. And most of the work that I do is front end development. So I will write the test after I have that feature. And part of maybe I should even take a step back. If you're doing test-driven development, so I was watching a course on it, and it was like, say you have an addition function that you're trying to write. Simple, right? You take two numbers and add them together, and you say you want it to return three. So you write your test to return a three, and then you write your function to just say, like, return three. Well, and then you go to the next test. Well, I want to be able to take, like, what happens when I add those two numbers? Well, it's not three. So then you try and get your test to turn green. So that way of thinking to be honest, didn't always make sense to me because I'm like, why write code that you know that's not going to work, but it's going to pass the test. So that's my hot take. (laughs) In my opinion, what it's doing is it's forcing you to implement just what you decide you need instead Mm -hmm. of, uh, you you ever work with some developers who are like, okay, we're going to build this thing and we're going to add all these fancy bells and whistles in it. And it's like, we're not there yet. Or the developer who talks about scalability on day one. It's like, we're Mm -hmm. just not there yet. Let's get the thing working and then talk about all these extra things we want. I think test-driven development kind of like hones you in on what your true goals are to ship the thing that works slowly, iteratively along the way. Right. And if you have a good project manager, they should write acceptance criteria into the story. So I know we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, but really you have a feature, say you want to add login. And what a project manager does is they're going to work with, say, the dev lead to write those stories. And so they'll say, hey, when you go to the page, you should see an email input, a password input, and a submit button. And that's the test. Like when you have those three things as your acceptance criteria, I need to see those three things, then that's the test that you write. And then another story will say, hey, if I enter the username and the password correctly, show me this page. And that's the next test that you write for that particular story. So I don't remember what the original question was. Yeah. So let's see. In my past, I've worked on teams where we're building stuff from the ground up and we definitely follow them, make it work first and then add tests later. But once we kind of got the ball rolling, tests would come in with features. Mm -hmm. I primarily wrote like UI and utility function unit tests, which I will say they're probably the easiest to get started with, but probably Mm -hmm. the least bang for your buck. But that's primarily what I'm used to. I use things like Jest, React Testing Library, and we'll go into what all those are later. Yeah. Now, Um, I will add this on. So one of the reasons why you'll write your test first is that way you can see a failing test. Because if you already have the feature and then you write the test for it, there's a good chance that it's going to be green or it's going to be successful. It's going to pass because you already wrote the code successfully. So one of the things that you'll want to do is also 
once you write a passing test, just double check to make sure that it will fail. So purposefully break it, make sure the test doesn't work anymore, and then fix it. Yeah, that's a good point. So I guess let's start chunking down like the three major, more than Mm -hmm. three, actually, there's lots of different kinds of testing. I would say the three primary types of testing is unit testing, integration testing, end-to-end testing. But I'll throw two more on there, two more important categories, if you ask me, especially for front-end developers, is visual regression testing and accessibility testing. Yeah. Can you think of any more like broad categories of testing? I can't think of any. I know that sometimes, I guess that would still be the same thing. I was going to say, if you're doing search engine testing, like if I want to see how that appears in Google, but I don't necessarily write a test for that. I suppose you could because you're checking your metadata. Yeah. But I think that's all of them. Actually, one other category of testing could be static testing. Things like ESLint and TypeScript. Mm, mm-hmm, so you're statically mm-hmm. testing your code base. You're not actually writing tests against it, but you are defining passing criteria in your configurations that says my code must adhere to you know, strict typings and this particular kind of safeguards and formatting that ESLint has to offer. Yeah, that's a great point. So Kent Dodds, or Kent C. Dodds, if you want to Don't be official. The C. Don't forget the, the C. C. I need an initial. I mean, I have a middle initial, but it's not interesting. <laughs> uh, James has his cue. So Kent C. Dodds has this thing called the testing trophy, and we can include a link to that as well in the show notes. But what that does is it's kind of this hierarchy. So instead of a pyramid, it kind of shows like the amount of tests versus the importance of tests. And so at the bottom are the static tests. That's like level one. And part of that is because you get those tools a lot of times out of the box. Um, it's VS Code has a lot of that stuff built in with Prettier and ESLint that make that really easy. And you're not having to, as Brad said, actively write tests. And then the next level of that is write unit tests. So that's testing an individual piece of code. We can go into detail more on that. But the reason you're not getting a big bang for your buck is because you're testing individual things. You're testing a single unit. And I would agree, if you're just getting started, that is the easiest way to test. With integration tests, you're trying to see how everything is integrated together. So are those units working correctly when they're passing data from one component to the next? And then end-to-end testing is where you test everything across the board. So you're checking an entire page to see if you're getting what you would expect. And that really is kind of the holy grail of testing because that's testing the site or the application the way that the user is experiencing it. And that's what they care about. They don't care about whether a certain prop is getting passed in or a class name is there. What they care about is are they able to achieve the task or the job that they came to the site to be able to do. You know, this is really interesting. I was taking a second look at Kenzie Dodd's testing trophy, and I would have thought Mm -hmm. that the most valuable type of test you could write would be the end-to-end test because it covers the most broad spectrum from the front end to the back end of Mm -hmm. your application. Testing trophy actually says differently. Testing trophy says integration tests are the most important. That's where the trophy gets wide there. Oh, but the end to end is at the top. Yeah. Yes. Is the width of the trophy, how much you should be doing? I think so. Yeah. How many tests? I think it has to do with how many tests you should write for that thing. So like you write your end to end first, they're saying, because it's the most bang for the buck. And just a few end-to-ends, your most important flows. Then you write lots mm-hmm. of integration tests because those are your boundaries. Those are very important. A little bit of unit, a little bit of static. Okay, yeah. that makes and sense. And I don't think it's necessarily order. So like I would probably write a unit test first because I'm delivering a small component. 
then the end test would be last because that's where you have everything. But I think that was the idea behind the trophy size was that there's a width there. It's not like a pyramid. Gotcha. Yeah. And I thought there was something to like, if you already have an application with no tests, working this trophy from top to bottom is the best way to go. Bang for buck wise to add tests to your application. Yeah. If you have absolutely no tests. And I think Kent would even say, if you only have time to write one set of tests, write your end-to-end tests. Right. Right. Okay. So all that being said, let's start like kind of at the bottom up. We'll skip the static testing stuff, let's say, but we'll start at unit testing. Actually, I will throw this in there. For that, West Boss has a no sweat TM trademark <laughs> configuration for setting that stuff up. So I will link that in the course notes. I use it. It's fantastic. Okay. You're plugging the wrong ESLint config. The one you're looking really? for is at Brad Garropy slash ESLint. <laughs> okay, done. <laughs> I've got a TypeScript version, a Svelte version, a React what? version, and they all build on each other. Have you TM'd them? No, there's <laughs> no TM. I got to put a TM. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> I used West Bosses to figure out how to make them because honestly, they're very tough to like really? figure out how to layer on top of each other. Yeah. Well, I looked to his because I have had issues where ESLint and Prettier will fight each other. And that's crazy frustrating when ESLint's like, this is wrong. And Prettier's like, I'm going to fix it. And like, no, that's not what I, it's still yeah. wrong. And some people like decide to put their Prettier inside of ESLint, but mm-hmm. I chose not to because there were cases where I was running ESLint where I didn't want Prettier to run. I can't remember mm-hmm. what they were exactly, but this is all a big tangent. But at the end of the day, I found it helpful to separate them out, which sometimes means I still had that headache. But I think I put some guards in the ESLint config so that doesn't happen. Awesome. And maybe we should explain the difference between Prettier and ESLint. A lot of times ESLint will point the stuff out and Prettier will automatically format it. So... That's static testing. Next up is unit testing. And I've used Jest before to write my unit tests. And I feel like that's the main library that most people use. But I think you've been working with VTest lately. Yeah, so you're right. Jest is like the powerhouse library. It's pretty much Mm -hmm. what you use for unit testing. But Jest is isn't doing a great job of supporting ES modules and the next generation uh, of, you know, how we import and export functions across Node.js. So VTest has first class support for not only ES modules, but it also supports JSX and TypeScript out of the box. So all these tools that you're already using in your tool chain, VTest just gets it. No config, no nothing. It just works. So do you have to be running Vite in order to use VTest? No. So you can just add VTest, but it's weird because VTest and Vite can like share a configuration, which is really cool because that means you're building your application and your tests with the same configuration. Awesome. You know how like with Jest, you have to write almost a separate Babel and Webpack config to get the tests mm-hmm. to figure out what they're doing. That's not great because you're actually testing your code differently than you're building and running it inside of your app. So yeah, that's the cool thing about Vite and how it pairs with VTest. Very cool. But I will say, I've noticed that VTest is slower in some cases than Jest. And I really? migrated over to it because I thought it was going to be way faster. Turns out they do like the hot module refresh mm-hmm. almost. They can like rerun sections of your test very quickly. But from top to bottom, Jest performance is better in that regard. 
Interesting. So if you're just writing, say, like a single test, as you're writing your test, it's faster. But if you run the entire test suite, then it's slower. You can think of it like in watch mode, V-test blows just out of the water because their on-the-fly compilation happens way faster. But in a top-to-bottom test run, I've found that Jest, in some cases, is twice as fast as V-test, wow. which really like blew my mind. Interesting. Yeah, sometimes it can be frustrating waiting for the test to run. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, what's like the anatomy of a unit test, right? I feel like every Jest test has a couple different steps. You want to walk us through those? Yeah. So a lot of times when I'm writing a Jest test, because this is front end, I'll look at the component and I'll say, what does the user expect? And that's how I write all my tests. What are they expecting? What do they need? So if we go back to that login example, I'm expecting to see a label with a specific text there. I'm expecting to see an input. And so what you can do, if it's say React or SvelteKit or Vue, is you can say, render this component and I am going to grab an element. You're going to select it. And they have different helpers to be able to select that specific element. And then you're going to take that and say, I expect this to be here. And isn't there even like a formula or an acronym for that with your tests? Like it's set up tests and then. Yeah. So I think what you're trying to say is like each unit test probably goes in a flow where you mm-hmm. set up the given criteria for what you're going to render and show. Then you actually render or mount your component that you want to look at. You select the specific element or bit of text on the screen, and then you make an assertion on what you think should be there or what should happen. And then tear down at the end. Yep. I think it's important to call out that when you're testing something like front end, you probably don't just want to be using query selectors and like the document to query what you're expecting because the user doesn't care if it's a span inside of a paragraph inside of a div. They don't care. Speak of the devil, once again, Kent C. Dodds has a library that essentially makes your selectors be something that the user cares about. For instance, the label text, the placeholder text, the ARIA labels. So these are things that are visible to the user that it's a method of selecting what's on the screen that aligns more closely with what the user cares about than what, you know, the HTML DOM object is. Yeah. And then in a pinch, you can also add a data attribute to your element and say data dash test ID. So it's not encouraged. I probably lean on it a little more than I should, but it is helpful in a pinch. So if you have multiple buttons on the page and you're trying to grab a specific button, you could grab it by the, label of the button, which would be what the user sees, but you could also reach for a data attribute. And I will say this, if you do leverage those data attributes, please use like a Babel plugin or a build tool configuration option to strip those out. I go to too many websites and I see the data test IDs all over the DOM output and you're just kind of sending more data than need be. And it looks like a little bit sloppy. Yeah. Yeah. I linked in the show notes the cheat sheet for the hierarchy of React testing library of how you should select elements. Awesome. And so obviously that data test ID is on the bottom, whereas something like ARIA label is at the top. Perfect. Okay, so this might be a hot take. Code coverage is 
where you can basically have just, or I'm assuming beat test has this as well, where you run code coverage and it will tell you what lines of code have not been covered by testing. And so the reason I said that it's a hot take is some companies will want you to hit 100% in code coverage, but that isn't necessarily beneficial. So let me give you an example. I could have an about page with a lot of static text on it. It's not really that necessary whether I write a test to make sure that text is being displayed or not. It's static. But something like my e-commerce checkout, that's essential to the business. We need that to work. So it would be better and definitely more beneficial to the company if you write tests for your e-commerce versus your about page. So you might be willing to sacrifice some percentage points with code coverage not to cover your about page. Yeah, it's definitely a good time investment tool to understand where you want to increase coverage. I will say my hot take for myself is I do 100% code coverage on every file that I touch. And just because you have 100% code coverage, it doesn't mean your tests are good, right? You might not be making the right assertions, even though you're hitting all the lines. So code coverage doesn't say that you're actually testing each step along the way. It just says these lines were executed during your test run. But I like to use code coverage as a metric for me to say, did I at least hit all the if statements, all the branches, all the cases in the switch statements as I'm going through my components? It still might not mean my tests are the best, but it does mean that from a to-do checkoff, I've actually like written the test for every case that Jest can figure out. And you're right, Jest and VTest both use the same code coverage tool, V8, under the hood. And that's the great thing about VTest too. The API is like 100% Jest compatible. So very, very familiar if you're transitioning. Oh, so you could even use the same tests, but just have VTest run it instead of Jest? Pretty much. The only difference is that by default, Vite doesn't expose the describe, test, and expect globals like Jest does. Although there's a config option to do that too. So like migrating is almost zero effort. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And now it's time to take a second to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Dato CMS. Dato CMS is a complete and performant headless CMS built to offer the best developer experience and user friendliness in the market. One of the things I think is really interesting and neat on their website is if you hover on their Why Dato CMS tab in the nav bar, you see sections for developers, digital markers, and content creators. So it's got the entire audience covered. They also provide a rich CDN-powered GraphQL API with real-time updates, which is really neat. So all of you who love working with GraphQL and are looking for something that has real-time updates, this is really, really cool. They also provide a super flexible way to handle dynamic layouts and structured content and then have best in-class image and video support with progressive image loading out of the box. So if you're looking for a headless CMS that can help represent every member of your team, make sure to check out Dato CMS. Let's move up and talk about integration. Okay. So we said earlier that integration test has to do with how those units go together. So on this, are you testing, say, to make sure the API is coming in correctly to a component? I got to say, integration test is the gray area for me, right? (laughs) Because it means that you're mocking some things out while keeping other things legit. And so your integration test can go a lot of different ways. The way I would kind of do this is, let's say you have a complex component, and I'll talk just about the front end, like one component that nests a couple others underneath it. So you're testing at a higher level. Instead of mocking out all the children components, 
you're testing this thing as one big unit. The thing that I struggle with integration tests is making sure that I'm not retesting everything that I just tested in an integration test. So for example, we keep coming back to this login form. I might have a unit test to make sure that say a label and an input, that would be a unit is working correctly. But then when you say, I'm going to test the entire login form, I don't want to go in and test that every single label is appearing the right way. I trust the unit test that I wrote to do that job. Would you say then the integration test is the interaction between the single front end component and the back end source of data, like the and the mutation or loader that occurs in relation yeah. to that component? Yeah, I think that's typically how I would lean on it. Or like since we're talking about this form, the button should already be tested on the unit level to make sure that an on-click event is being triggered. But mm. on the form itself, I might have logic to actually do something. So I would probably use that integration test to test the logic on that individual form. Like, is the on-submit handler doing what it's supposed to do? Is it grabbing the data out of those inputs the way that I would expect? Would you say that the integration test should go across the wire and talk to the API? Oh, see, that's a hard one. So the reason that this is hard, we can kind of explain it a little bit, is with an API, a lot of times you're having to go out and hit a server to grab the information. And so in some cases, well, hopefully all cases, that server should be testing the API. So there should be tests there that you don't necessarily have to worry about, but you also wanna make sure that you're getting your data back and that the API is running the way that it should be. So a lot of times you'll do what's called mocking, or you'll say, I'm pretending to get this information back from the API, and you'll pass this fake or static data in to say, this is what I'm getting. And that's kind of where testing for me, a lot of, just to be honest, a lot of times breaks down. This is the gray area. Do you mock out your on submit method when you click the button? Do you mock out the API in and of itself with something like mock service worker? Or do you let the request fly and come back and still consider that an integration test because that wasn't driven by the user in the browser. It was driven by, you know, code simulating these events. So I think integration testing has kind of a wide array of possibilities. And it's kind of up to the developer, the team, and how you want to test. I think this is like really interesting that Ken C. Dodds stresses integration testing so much yet you and I both think it's such a mushy gray area. <laughs> well, and some of it's just because honestly, it's harder to write. Like what level do I do that? What's interesting too is I'm not sure where the blend is between integration and end testing. A lot of times those lines get blurred as well. Like we're talking about this form input that if that's all that's on the page, does that technically an end to end test or is it an integration test? Cause you're testing the entire page. I think it's a little more clear to me between integration testing and end-to-end -end testing. Okay, so how do you delineate? Yeah, because I think an end-to-end -end test is driven by a real browser rendering mm -hmm. elements and actually like performing actions in the browser. So okay. Cypress, Puppeteer, things like that, where you're actually okay. driving a browser to produce results. That's end-to-end. -end. If you're simulating those same actions inside okay. of a JS DOM environment, inside of a test environment, I would definitely consider that integration. So would you have, going back to this login example, would you kind of have two tests for that? An integration test that generates all that stuff from the code and then say a end-to-end -end test that does the exact same thing except it's within the browser. 
Pretty much. You, you definitely could. <laughs> and I think this biggest gray area is the network chasm. That is the part that makes it more difficult. I think if you're talking about an integration test purely on the back end where one function calls another, calls another, calls another, and you can test that as a stack, that would be an integration test. Mm. Right? Or just like you think of those hierarchical React components that are nested in one another. If you are testing the top level and you're not mocking out any of the children components, that is a valid integration test because it's running the code path all the way down. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So for integration tests, you're still using Justin vtest. And then I might throw something in like mock service worker. Okay. If you don't want to touch the API. So if your tests do cross the network chasm and make fetch requests, things like that, you can either let those fly or you can use a mocking service like mock service worker to fake your API, your backend and say, I want to test these specific responses, which is cool because you can force your application into different states without like fiddling with the database or seeding the database in a certain way. Okay. And okay, let me throw this out here. I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but this will be good (laughs) for me to be transparent in this moment. I still struggle with spies and some of the mocking pieces. That is the hardest part of testing. And that's I completely agree. I feel the same way. Every time I have to mock stuff, I'm like, dang it, this is hard. (laughs) Yeah. And so spies, what spy does is it like kind of spies on your component to see when a button gets triggered or something else, but it like kind of looks into your component to say, okay, I know this just happened, but this, oh man, I struggle with it. Spies are interesting too, because by default, they track like the invocations of a particular function and all the arguments that were passed into them without modifying the implementation of that function. But you can also tack on to a spy a mock implementation. So you're like, now you're just mocking it anyways. Mm, I see. So spies are spies at the outset are just supposed to like look at what's happening and report back and not change anything. But they also offer okay. that option just like a mock. So it is kind of weird. Okay, so let me give an example for somebody that's Totally, totally new to testing. One place where I will typically reach for, say, mocking data that's not related to an API is, say, I'm trying to display a post, and I want to say this was posted five days ago. Well, in order to do that, you can take the date and test it against now. Well, if I get that to turn green today, that's awesome. Tomorrow, it's not going to turn green because tomorrow the date's different. So what you want to do with your test is mock the date so that I can say, hey, let's pretend like it's going to be today for forever, Groundhog Day situation, and then your test will pass. But like today and tomorrow and the day after that. But oh man, it's so annoying. <laughs> okay. Do you want to swap some like mocking horror stories? I've got yes, two please. that were. Oh, hot. yes. Always. Okay. I wrote a use countdown hook in React that I use on my stream overlay to like count down five minutes to when I go live. Shout out, it has like 50K downloads, which is wild. That's awesome. Um, So I wrote tests for this, but it's all based on timers. And I had to mock out, and this was like my first real, like, you need to mock stuff for real, not just like YOLO, whatever's going on. So I had to mock out all the timers and then figure out how to advance them very specifically by, you know, a certain interval or clear them all out and run them all to the end. And that was like, very tough. And I think that was what forced me to really understand how mocking works. That's solid. 
My second story is I needed to mock out Next.js router because I wanted to test a search bar on my website where you're typing into the search bar and it's updating the URL query parameters with the search that you're entering. That was very difficult. What it really came down to was in a mock, when you're mocking a module, by default, it mocks the entire module, every export that comes out of it. But in this case, I only wanted to mock the use router hook, but keep the rest of everything in there intact. And so it was this song and dance of you have to import the original, mock out just the thing that you care about, and stub out all the functions in there, and then keep going. But it took so many iterations to get that just right. Yeah. I think also mocking hooks. I struggled with that before in the past, Mm. too. I don't know if I've ever mocked a hook. It's just a function, right? Like to mock a hook, you would just (laughs) return a value. I guess it depends on what the hook does. Yeah. So this is where this comes in. It's been a huge stumbling block for me is the custom audio player on the compressed site is trying to figure out how to create tests for all of that because you're also dealing with time. So I think this is what you were referencing with your countdown Mm -hmm. timer Mm -hmm. is if I have a three minute song, I don't want to wait three minutes in my test to make sure that all the states of that component were displayed correctly in the three minutes. So it gets really complicated trying to test all that out. Yeah, because that's not just like a set interval. That's Mm -hmm. That's like a video element, a native mm-hmm. video element that I guess controls its own state for how much time is left on the item that it's playing. I suppose you could like programmatically control it and like set the time to the end and then make sure I, there's got to be an API for like well, video dot set time or something and yeah. then confirm all your buttons are in the right state. Yeah. So what's interesting is that particular player, the input itself is not an audio element. It's a range input. And you can style that range input however you want, which is awesome when you're styling it. But then that adds a whole nother layer when you're trying to test it. Because you're managing state now that that controls all that. Yes. Yes. Okay. Lovely, Uh, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The price you pay for good design, I suppose. Oh, man. Worth it. (laughs) Yes. We need to pair program some of that stuff one day. Uh, Yes. Love to. Let me take a brief moment and talk about the company that I work for, Zeal. They actually sponsor our podcast. They design custom applications and develop primarily in Rails and React. They're a remote-first company even before the pandemic. They're based out of Southern Oregon, but I live outside of Nashville, and we have team members across the entire country. But Zeal holds a special place in my heart because, as I mentioned, I work there. But I can honestly say it's the best place that I've ever worked. And good news for you, they are hiring, so you could work with me. In particular, we are hiring a senior UI UX designer and front-end developer. I'm pretty stoked about this position because you'll be on my team. We have some really fun initiatives planned for 2022, so you get to be a part of that. In general, our whole setup is pretty unique. So you can find more information on the website, codingzeal.com. And of course, I'll include a link in the description below. End-to-end. So end-to-end testing, I usually look for Cypress. We did have Debbie O'Brien on the podcast a few weeks ago, and she works for Microsoft and was telling us all about... Playwright, which also sounds interesting. Which one do you usually lean towards? I usually lean towards Cypress. I like it because it has the React testing library support to make the selectors good, but 
I don't love the whole like it opens a separate UI tab that you have to run tests through there. It's weird to me. You can control that. You can turn that off and have it all run in code. Oh, really? Yeah. And it runs so much so I don't have faster. to see that UI window. Great. No. Yes. I'll find the snippet. I'll send it to you and I'll include it in the course notes. Oh, that's um, a hot tip right there. Yeah. So Scott Talinsky has a course on level up tutorials all about Cypress. That's very good. I think one of the learning curves for me, though, is it doesn't use the same syntax that you would use with Jest. It's using Mocha or Chai yes, or something. Right. Yes. yes, Chai. It's yes. using Chai instead. I think or, that's configurable, too. Actually. Oh, really? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> what a great episode learning all or kinds like, of things. <laughs> just like Google, like VTest Cypress. Somebody's probably done it where oh, they that'd like. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. It's just a twist in syntax for me that I've got to think twice about. But the other game changer for me when I'm writing tests like that is a lot of the extensions that VS Code has built in is very helpful in trying to find the right selector or the right assertion that you need in order to do the job. Right. So I guess we should talk about what is end testing. My definition is that it's testing performed from a real browser. So you can think of it like a staging version of your website or production. Either way, it doesn't matter, right? So... End-to-end testing is when you are running like a staging version or a production version of your website and kind of driving it through a headless browser and actually performing user flows on the website. And You can verify what you're seeing on the screen is what you expect. So after you press the login button, you wait for the next screen to show up and now you should be on the dashboard where you see your username and your email and things like that. And I know Brad said he did not like the Cypress UI, but it is actually kind of cool, at least the first time that you see it. So what that does is you can actually see a recorded video of your test running in the browser. You can see it, fill out the form and click on different pieces so that when your test does break, it makes it a lot easier to find, okay, what didn't work? I see what the user sees and you can go from there. Yeah, that's where it's completely like invaluable prices. Like when you can actually see what happens, it's the best. You also have in the notes database seeding. So this is kind of interesting. When you are testing things against the API or the database, say you're building out an admin panel, you have to make sure that it actually got added to the database. Or if you're trying to edit or view a list, you have to make sure that that data is there. Well, if you're in production, it could have changed or even staging for that matter. So one of the things that you'll do with testing is you'll seed the database so that you can guarantee that a set of data is actually in the database and you're getting that back. Now, would you say that this is only applicable to end testing? Because I feel like you could do this stuff in integration testing as well, if you are speaking to the API. Yeah, so I have done it in integration tests using your delineation of integration versus end-to-end, and primarily through Redwood. So Redwood has some great tools to make testing a whole lot easier and how they provide data and mocking data. So for example, I've used stuff where I'll maybe write a story and like I'll create a mock file and I'll create a storybook story to use that data as I'm viewing it in storybook. And then I can also import that same mock file into my test, which is kind of cool that you can just have that one set of data and use it in multiple places. But it has other things too on the back end when you're testing that API to be able to make sure that everything's running correctly. Yeah, that's sick. It sounds like Redwood does some really good integrations between all the different pieces of your app. Do you know what they use for API mocking? I can go out on a limb, but I might be wrong. So just take it with a grain of salt. I think that they kind of 
created their own built-in support for some of it. I don't think it's a built-in library. Gotcha. But okay. Like I said, that's a 50-50. <laughs> could be right, could be wrong. <laughs> now, I'm willing to bet that you probably have more experience than me with this database seeding type stuff. Would you do that before like every test? Because something in my mind says seeding a database is expensive or, you know, creating a fresh table and sticking data in it is expensive. Can you confirm or deny any of that? <laughs> so it's not, I don't think as crazy as you might think. Let me give you two use cases. So Redwood handles a lot of that for you. You don't have to do a lot of that setup. When you actually set up Redwood locally, you set up two databases, a testing database and a production database, and you just pass it the credentials for test the test database, and it will add a lot of things as you go. So if I say I want to add something to the database and then test whether it's there, it will add it to the testing database and do all those checks for you. The other piece that I've used for seeding data is a lot of times for say like a staging database where I'm working with a team and we want to make sure that we have the right test data in the database. And so we'll write out a, like in Redwood, for example, I think they have a seed.json file and you can add all of that data. And then when it runs the tests, it will basically wipe the database, clean it all out, add your seed file, do all the tests that it needs. And then the next time it runs, it'll wipe your database again. So it's really just maintaining a single seed.json file. So there might be a little bit of expensiveness to do that initial setup, but after that, it's not too bad. And I guess in my mind, it would be like a before every individual test, not before each test run. Like you could view it as a before each instead of a before all. Mm. Or are you saying that you only see the database before the entire test run? Oh, you can do it either way, I think. I'm assuming it, you could do it either way. But my worry yeah. is if you do it only once at the beginning, then you risk then mutating that data. Yeah, yeah exactly. Then maybe it does it. I'm not sure how. Honestly, I just lean on Redwood for a lot of that stuff. And I'm not that's sure great. how they have it set up. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And because that's works. why I was like, if you did it before <laughs> every single test uh, in my head, it's like this is going to get slow somehow. Yeah. Well, and remember, you're mocking some of that out. You're really only running those tests, say, like on the API level, like when you're doing the back end testing versus the front end testing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So that setup isn't run everywhere, just right. some places. Right. Yeah. But Redwood's pretty great when it comes to stuff like that. And I will say, if you use, let's say, something like a flat file database, like a SQLite database for mm -hmm. local testing, that's going to be way faster than like, something like a Postgres database where you have to like create connections and do all that stuff, even if it's local, right? Mm. The flat file database is going to be way faster just to like write some JSON data to a file. Okay. I mean, that makes uh, sense. That's my experience there is from Remix where mm. when you're doing local development, you've got a SQLite database and it just blazingly fast because it's just a file on your machine. Yeah. Shout out to <laughs> Redwood and Remix. So visual regression testing is the next set of tests that we have listed. And I feel like, I hate saying this, but a lot of times it seems like the extra thing. I feel like it's the forgotten test. It's like the easiest one to look over. But the reason that you have it is, say you have everything works. The functionality looks great, everything works, but you added something and your style sheet broke your entire site. Your tests are all gonna still run, everything's gonna pass, but it's gonna look terrible and your site's not gonna be usable because the front end is broken. And so what visual testing will do is a lot of times it'll take a screenshot. So if you're using, say, Puppeteer, it'll kind of mock everything out, kind of pretend to run everything in the browser. But it'll take a screenshot of that P 
piece or that component. And then the next time you want to run visual regression tests, it will take another screenshot and it'll compare the two screenshots to see if they match. So when it runs, you can say, yes, that looks correct or no, that doesn't look correct. Yeah. And I got to say the most, yeah. And I got to say that the way that I break my website most often is through CSS changes that Mm -hmm. don't look right. Not JavaScript stuff, you know, through CSS. So yeah, this visual testing is so important. And one of the things that I really loved is Chantastic's opening slide in all of his talks that say, burn just snapshots with fire, because a just snapshot is not the same as a visual regression test. A just snapshot only snapshots the code that is used to generate what you see in the browser. So if you're, you can change some CSS there that produces the same effect in the browser, but the just snapshot test is going to fail, whereas the browser test is going to work just fine. So they're on two different levels completely. And I personally don't recommend using just snapshots for like any form of UI testing because it is not the same thing. Yeah. Do you have a use case for snapshot, just snapshots in general? Very, 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 very rarely. Yeah. I have most of the developers I've worked with are like, they're pointless <laughs> because if you like, change your code, you know, you change it. And then it's like, oh yeah, snapshot told me I changed my code. Except. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Or like sometimes if I'm like too lazy, this is super bad practice. Don't follow my (laughs) advice. If I'm too lazy to write out like many, many expect statements for something that I'm expecting. Let's say you just had some function that transforms data and adds one field to the object. Instead of like copy and pasting some giant object, I'm like, whatever, make sure it matches the snapshot because I know the snapshot's right based on what I wrote. But that's a fallacy, right? Because mm-hmm. you're, you wrote the code first, you assume it's correct, and you're snapshotting that. That's me being lazy, not wanting to like recurse and write all the expect statements and things like that. Yeah. But practically, yeah, I don't think there's a great use case for snapshots. In terms of visual regression test snapshots, I, I think they're incredibly valuable, but I've had less conflicts since using Tailwind. Because with Tailwind, I'm focused on a specific component, whereas if I'm using style components or CSS modules or just vanilla CSS, a lot of times I might change a style and that affects a component elsewhere in the application that I forgot about. I'm nodding so hard, my head is going to hurt. Yeah, like this is so important. Oddly enough, we spend a lot of our time trying to remove the cascade from CSS, but it is really important when now our unit of work is the component. You expect the styles and the things you write to to only affect the one component you're working in it, that's your base unit. But yeah, style bleed is a real problem. And Tailwind kind of helps with that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the end all solution, but it does right. kind of help with that because you're adding your classes directly to a specific HTML element. Yep, for sure. Whereas, yeah, if you're using a larger style sheet, that can affect the whole site, the whole page that it's loaded on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have two things listed in the notes related to visual regression or visual testing in general. You have Storybook and Storybook, you can run tests directly in Storybook. A lot of times I'll use that for front end development. So I'm creating a specific component and then handing that off to a back end developer. Then Storybook is actually open source and it's built by a company called Chromatic. And Chromatic does focus on visual regression testing and you can connect Storybook and like so your chromatic account so that it will run those visual regression tests on their server. What's your experience with like 
wiring up Storybook and Chromatic and getting all that installed in your projects? Yeah, so the main place where I've used Storybook is Redwood. So you'll hear another shout out to Redwood. That one of the things I love about Redwood is that it really does help instill the best practices for development. So in this case, it's encouraging you to write a Storybook component and test it before actually handing that off. So Chromatic, because Redwood handles a lot of the Storybook setup, I had a little bit of trouble getting Chromatic to work with Redwood and Storybook. I have actually leaned on Percy for some of the visual aggression testing that I've done before, and I really like Percy. So Percy has an integration with Cypress, and I'm sure Chromatic probably uh-huh. does too, but it's I found it to be easier to tie to Cypress than, say, Storybook. Yeah, because like, I don't know, Storybook to me doesn't provide a lot of value in and of itself. If you're like a design components team or something like that, or a UI library team mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. But in my applications, writing a Storybook just seems like a whole lot of extra work just to ultimately get to visual regression testing. And I inevitably have troubles either writing stories or getting mm-hmm. them to render properly because once again, it has its own Webpack config, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. So I've never like successfully run the gamut of Storybook with Chromatic. So yeah, hooking it up to Cypress, which sounds like way better because you're already leveraging and leaning on Cypress for your end-to-end tests. Right. You're already kind of in a testing mentality. Yeah. The One of the things I do love about Storybook is that if I'm trying to create a component, and again, this comes to the front-end piece that you were talking about, I'm not having to create, say, like a fake component on a page because I've done that before. I've had to create a component on a page just so I can see how it looks and then hand that code snippet off to a developer and say, hey, delete all of this stuff when you get ready to do the implementation. It right. doesn't need to live here. And so that feels a little icky writing code somewhere that you know it shouldn't live and it shouldn't belong. And so Storybook kind of gives that a home for that development piece. Yeah, definitely good for like cross team work, working with your design team, working with your test team and Storybook's getting more valuable. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. You you do have the ability to write tests directly in there, like unit tests directly in there now. And with the hooking up of Chromatic, you get your visual regression. Yeah. And it will launch accessibility tests as well. There's an accessibility panel that will tell you whether how things are working or whether they're displayed correctly. So you can launch accessibility tests within Storybook. So that kind of serves as a good segue into accessibility testing. Yeah, so there are accessibility testing tools baked right into Google Chrome. If you press F12 and go into the dev tools, there's a Lighthouse tab. And Lighthouse tab not only does accessibility testing, it also does core web vitals testing. So both are very important. Accessibility testing ensures that your website is navigable and interactable through means other than a mouse or visually. They do things like check screen reader compatibility and tab states and focus states, things like that. But the Core Web Vitals Lighthouse tool overall checks a bunch of stuff from performance to SEO to accessibility. And it'll give you an overall report on your website of like, just how good you're doing broken down into sections. And I like to use this as one of my final steps before I deploy a website or launch it to go live to make sure that I'm kind of ticking all those boxes. Those tools are getting better and better with what they suggest. Like for instance, they know if you're using Next.js and mm-hmm. they'll tell you, use the Next.js image component. Or if you're not using a Next.js image component, they'll tell you exactly what attributes to add on your image components to prevent layout shift or things like that. And 
why this is all important is the higher your lighthouse scores, the higher your core web vital scores, the better you're going to rank in Google search results. So if you want your site to be SEO friendly, you need to be ticking all these boxes. Yeah. And when I was at Magnolia JS, I met a guy named Todd Libby, and we're actually going to have him on the podcast, but he is fantastic when it comes to accessibility and just kind of bringing some of those maybe misconceptions into view. So a lot of times you might think, well, these are edge cases. And that feels so icky, you know, saying that somebody's normal is an edge case because you really do not want to try and exclude other people. That's not an equitable view of web development when you're not taking those things into consideration. And the beautiful thing is most accessibility issues are super easy to Mm -hmm. fix. Google will tell you exactly what to do. Just follow the instructions and you're going to score better. You're going to rank better on Google. It's better for you and Mm -hmm. your users. Yep, 100%. And let's take a minute and talk about Vercel. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. We're actually hosting the compressed.fm site and my personal site, selfteach.me on Vercel. They also power more well-known sites like Twilio, but you can use them for e-commerce, travel, news, and marketing sites. You name it, they can host it. When I got ready to launch the compressed site, it was super easy. I pointed it to the GitHub repository and told it what folder my next.js project was in, and then it just worked. Ridiculous, right? But they also power over 30 plus Jamstack frameworks, including Create React App, Next, Nuxt, Vue, Ember, Svelte, Angular, Hugo, and Gatsby, just to name a few. But one of my favorite features is when you set up your account, you get your own dashboard. And here you can invite other team members to collaborate or view analytics. So as soon as I push the code to my GitHub repository, it deploys that code and I can watch the build and its entire process through their custom dashboard. So be sure to check out Vercel. I'll include a link in the show notes, but special thanks to Vercel for being a Compressed.fm sponsor. Well, this has been fun and I've actually picked up a few tidbits along the way. So I'm excited to dig back into Cyprus with the, like the testing statements that I'm more familiar with. So the next section of the podcast is our grab bag question section where we take questions from friends and strangers alike on the internet. We don't have any for this particular episode, but if you do listen to this episode and do have questions, please feel free to tweet at us. You can use our handle at compressed FM. So from there, let's actually head over to our picks and plug section. And this is where we pick something that we like and plug something generally that we have worked on. So Brad, do you have any picks and plugs for us? I will start off with my pick. I'm getting back into podcasts again. I took like a big break over the summer from like everything programming, but this fall I've been just back on it. And I started from the beginning of the Call Kent's podcast. And this is a really cool podcast that he launched with his new website. It essentially allows for anybody to just call in, ask a question, and he answers it and publishes it as a podcast episode. So like just how accessible he is to people is amazing. And so what I like about this is that they're very specific questions. You know, it's not like a generalized answer. He gets to answer specifics. And so there's so many topics in there that are like really poignant, really good. And there's like tons of episodes And most of them are very short, like three to five minutes. You can really get through it fast. Awesome. Uh, And that's a great one to point out today because he has done so much for testing. Yeah, I guess. Well, okay, we'll link that. And then for my plug, we've been shouting out my YouTube channel a lot. And I'm I'm inching ever closer to a thousand. (laughs) I'm at 984 subscribers right now. So I just need a few more to reach a thousand. 
I really hoped you would hit that on Friday because I looked at the live stream. I was like, if everybody will hit subscribe, you'll do it. <laughs> yeah. So that's youtube.com slash Brad Garropy. Help me get there by 2023. <laughs> yes, done. So I'm going to pick a website that my dad told me about. He's like, oh, you don't know about this? <laughs> and I was like, no. It's called Camel, Camel, Camel. Have you heard of this? Okay. Oh. Yeah, so Camel, Camel, Camel. And it has a Chrome plugin called the Camelizer. But what it does is if you've ever purchased things on Amazon, which we purchase a lot on Amazon, the price will fluctuate. And so what Camel, Camel, Camel will do is it will tell you the fluctuations of that particular product. So if you don't need something right away, you can even schedule notifications to say, hey, if this product hits this particular price point, let me know. And of course, you can compare the history to say, okay, is this, I know this was this cost, say, two years ago. What has it been within the last three weeks, the month, whatever. So it's pretty great if you're doing a little bit of shopping. This is awesome. I've heard of people watching Amazon prices and I've heard that Amazon prices fluctuate in like a predictable manner. So this is really cool. Yeah. They got a like a time chart of the mm-hmm. prices over time of these things too. Well, and it tells you not only the price of Amazon, but like a third party seller and how those have fluctuated over time as well. Man, I'm looking at like AirPods yeah. Max right now. <laughs> yeah, Amazon are. is way cheaper compared to everybody else. Oh, interesting. That's cool. Yeah. So check that out. We'll include a link in the show notes. Camel, camel, camel. Um, and then for my plug, oh goodness, I'm going to go out on a limb and do this. <laughs> I'm going to plug Advent of JavaScript and Advent of CSS. I need to hit you up actually, Brad. So this year, last year, James and I had a lot of fun putting everything together, but it is a ton of work to create 24 challenges in the month of December. So this year, the plan is to tag in as many friends as possible. So be sure to go to Advent of CSS or Advent of JavaScript. You can sign up for one or both. We'll be sure to get you updates when they actually go out, but it'll be 24 challenges in the month of December. And like I said, we're hoping that it'll be a a bunch of friends contributing this year. That's awesome. I've never actually participated in those, but like, I love the idea that there's a little something to do every day. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, if you look at it and you're like, I don't want to commit, it's 24 challenges that you can really do anytime during the year. It's not just related to December. So it's a great way to kind of hone in on some of your CSS and JavaScript skills. I think that'll do it. That's all we, that's all we got. That's all we got. (laughs) 